Inside, it's comfortable. Inside a house, inside a family, inside a routine. But what if we widen our view beyond the fence across the street? Outside, we find people struggling with loneliness, poverty, families that don't look like ours, or without a safe family at all. Jesus didn't call us to live by our neighbors. He called us to love our neighbors. Hey, welcome back. Week five of uh, our series called Let's Neighbor. Now, in this series, we've been looking at the, the great commandment, right? Love God and love our neighbors. Now, we start with this really big idea. The big idea was that we can't neighbor. We can't neighbor without the loving God, right? And then because of that, do I have an echo to you guys too? You, oh, you guys can't hear me at all? Can you, can you turn me up a little bit back there? I'm not very well. That's all a matter of opinion, I suppose. No, just kidding. All right, is that a little bit better? All right, there you go. Let's just go over. Welcome. So glad you guys are here. Hey, so we started with this idea. We said we can't neighbor without the loving God. We can't neighbor without him. And we gave this, this circle. Right? We said God demonstrated his love towards us, right? And so because of that, then we can in turn love our neighbor. And by loving our neighbor, that is loving God, right? And then we said, look, if that's the case, if that's what it means to love God, is to take the love that he's given to us, to turn it towards our neighbor, and by loving them, we are loving God, then we said that we need to Love our neighbor. And that starts next door. And so we said, well, what does that mean? What does that look like for us? What is, who is our neighbor? And we said, hey, look, there are four areas that God has placed us in that we should be neighboring. We said, look, he's placed us in the places where we worship. He's placed us in the places where we do social life. He's placed us in the places where we work. And he's placed us in the places where we live. And all of those have people that are tangent in our lives and around us and near us. And because of that, we need to neighbor in those areas. Now, after, we, after all of this, after we finally tackled this idea of, uh, of the who and the what, we finally came back to this question of how. How do we do this? How do we love our neighbor. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up today, or got a digital version, just power it on, right? And turn to the book of Luke, the book of Luke. Now the last two weeks we've been in the book of Luke, we've been in chapter 10 looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan is told by Jesus, right? And he tells it to answer the question about who is our neighbor? But last week we said, really, instead of the who, Jesus answers the question of the how. And he begins to tell us how to love our, our neighbor. Now let me just share the story because we're actually going to go a little bit deeper into Luke today than, than this story. So let me just recap the story of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus sets the stage. We have this certain man who's going from Jerusalem and he's headed down towards Jericho. And somewhere along the way, bandits jump out and they rob him and beat him and leave him half dead. 
Now by chance, if you were here last week, I loved those three words. Now by chance, a priest comes walking by and he doesn't do anything. And then a Levite. Now a Levite is like a, a leader in the church, right? He's like the guy who would help to do all of the things that the, the church functions and all of the, the things that come together. He's the one who helped to make it happen. So a church leader comes walking by and he does nothing. And then a Samaritan comes by, right? This is that, that guy, that girl, that person who is just not welcome at church, right? You can probably picture somebody like that who you might think, oh, that's the kind of person who wouldn't be very welcome if they walked in the doors somewhere. This was that person. This is who the Samaritan was. And the Samaritan helps the man. Not only does he help the man, but he pays for his care. The Samaritan in the story was a good neighbor. And last week we, we said that the first thing about L-O-V-E, our neighbor, is that we have to learn to lean in. We have to learn to lean in. Now we're still going to be referencing Jesus' story, but we're going to push on a little bit further. and We're going to be in verses um, 38 and onward. But I want to tell you something very interesting about Luke. Now, we've said a lot of things about Luke over the last couple of weeks because I like to give you something about the book that we're looking at. For example, we talked about that Luke is all about the little people, right? He likes you to know that the gospel is for everyone. In fact, as we come to the Christmas story, the only place that you're going to find that the shepherds come to worship Jesus when he's born is in the book of Luke. Because Jesus, or excuse me, Luke wants everybody to know that Jesus is accessible to everybody. That's the good news. But here's another thing that's interesting about Luke. Luke was written to be read aloud. It was written to be read aloud in a setting just like what we're in right now with a group of Jesus followers who were gathered together. And there's something different about a story that is meant to be read aloud. It has this suspense to it. It has this building element to it. It has things that are connected for the story when it all comes together. And sometimes, sometimes what happens is, as preachers, or even as an audience, is we pull these segments apart and we don't see the connection. Even in the case where you're going verse by verse, we sometimes miss it because we get so focused in that we miss the big story about what was going on. And Luke says, look, I don't want you to miss the big story. I want you to connect some of these things together. And I think the next two stories that come right after Jesus is sharing the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke places them with great intentionality. And I think that they're there to help us to understand a little bit more about what it means to L-O-V-E, our neighbors. So if you've got it, look with me. Here we go. Let's jump in. Verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. The one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your divine inspiration that you gave to Luke and the way that he wove together the story of your son for us. God, you had ultimate control over the things that were going into the text, but I am so grateful for the, the inspiration that was there and for the things that we're going to be pulling out today. God, I know at moments I'm going to cringe my own toes as we talk about some things, and so I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you'd make us ready, but God, more than anything, more than anything, that we would become more like Jesus because of what we begin to do because of today. God, I just give you all of the glory and all of the honor in your name. Amen. So the first thing that we saw last week was that we have to learn, Jesus said we need to learn to lean in, right? We saw that there were three people who came by and the first two continued on down the path, but the third guy stopped. He leaned into whatever the situation that was going on there. And we talked about that there are moments, there are places, there are times that God calls us to lean in. Well, today I'm going to tell you the second thing, the second thing that I think Jesus says about what it means to L-O-V-E, our neighbors. And that is that we need to be others-minded. We need to be others-minded. Now you may say, Charles, that seems pretty straightforward. Seems like if you're going to talk about loving your neighbor, you should be others-minded. But I want you to just hang on with me for just a second, right? Because I want to tell you about a study. A study that was done in 1973. Now, this is a very famous study. Some of you may have heard about it before. It's actually called the Good Samaritan Study. Now, this study was designed to measure people's healthy behavior, right? Now, it's also known as the famous seminary experiment because this experiment took place at a seminary. Now, a seminary, for those of you who don't know, is the, it's like master's level and doctorate level for those who want to go into ministry. So somebody who um, says, hey, I think I want to be a pastor at some point, whether it's a family pastor, a kid's pastor, whatever, a lot of them go and they get their Bible training at a seminary, right? So these are all like theologians, heavy hitters, right? They're there at the seminary and this is where it took place. Now the study set out to answer this question. What possessed the priest and the Levite to pass by the injured man on the side of the road? Right? What a great question. They said, what possessed these two guys who were religious to just walk on by? Maybe, maybe they were in a hurry and were just filled with busy and important thoughts. Maybe the Samaritan was in less of a hurry. Maybe it was the virtues that the religious leaders had, um, and that was not something that they followed, right? Here's what the, the researchers had three hypotheses as they started the study. They said, number one, we think people think religions and religious helping thoughts 
would be more likely than others to give assistance. Seems like a fair hypothesis. Second one was, they think people in a hurry will be less likely to offer aid than others. And number three, they said people who are religious in a Samaritan fashion will be more likely to help than those of a priest or Levite fashion. In other words, they think people who are um, see their duties as something that is like a job would be less likely to stop and help than somebody who sees it as a lifestyle sort of a thing. So here was the procedure. They recruited seminary students for the study. They gave them a short survey, began to fill out the survey, and then they gave them a task. There were a couple of different tasks that they had. One of them was that they were going to have to prepare a talk over the Good Samaritan story. The other one was is that they just had to go make a financial presentation to some trustees of the university. And so those were the two controls of what the tasks were that they were given. And mid-task, as they were preparing, they were then instructed that they needed to move locations. And so they started at point A, and they had to now go over to point B in order to give the presentation of whatever it was. And the other variable that was given along the way was how much time they had to get to point B. So one group was told that they were already late for the presentation in B, that they needed to get there immediately because they were waiting on them, that they had lost a speaker and so that you were up next and you need to go now. The second group was told that while you still had 10 or 15 minutes, it was probably best that you go ahead and head on over that away now. Now you probably can imagine what happened along the way for this study to take place. They placed an individual along the way who needed help. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think somebody who is studying and is prepared and ready to give a talk on the Good Samaritan would recognize the individual who is injured and hurt laying there in the middle of their path. Here's the results of the study. Of the study. It said the amount of hurriness that was induced in the subject had a major effect on their helping behaviors. The task variable did not. It did not matter if they were giving a financial presentation versus if they were teaching on the Good Samaritan, the parable, as to whether or not they helped. What did affect it was how busy they thought they were. I love this. They had a conclusion, they had this quote. It said, ethics, ethics became a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increases. Let that sink in for just a second. Ethics becomes a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increases. You know, it was interesting that they noted something else Generally, one of the things that we think about the priest and the Levite is they must have been incredibly calloused individuals. To walk past this hurting individual and to have not seen him or to have done anything with him at all. 
how callous must their hearts have been because they must deal with this sort of thing all the time and that must be why. In fact, we even talked about that as a possibility last week when we talked about our own ability that sometimes, where's Paul at? Paul, what's the word? We get what? We get compassion fatigue. And we said that's a possibility of what goes on, but these researchers noticed something different. They said many times when the subjects walked in, they gave no help, didn't stop, didn't say anything. On a scale of zero to five, they were a one. They merely saw the individual and continued on their way. That when they walked in the doors, they were incredibly conflicted. They were conflicted because they wanted to do something, but they felt like they could not because of their busy time constraints. Conflict rather than callousness, can explain a failure to help. Conflict, rather than callousness, can explain the failure to help. First of all, just to say that I'm really glad that I was not at that seminary in 1973. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I would have failed this experiment. I would have been a zero or a one. Why in the world did the priest and the Levi not stop? I think Luke seems to highlight something different than them just being callous and not caring. I think that Luke has placed this story right afterwards to highlight something that is so important for us to catch. So here's the story, Mary and Martha, the two sisters, right? The sisters of Lazarus, he's not introduced in this text, but we find out later, this is the same guy that dies and Jesus brings back to life. He has great relationship with this family. Jesus tells them, actually he doesn't even tell them, he just shows up at their house. At least Zacchaeus had a little bit of warning. Jesus shows up. I don't know about you, but if Jesus told me today, that he was coming to my house, I'd be like, time out, Jesus, right? I need like six hours at least, right? I've got like Christmas boxes everywhere in my house right now, not to mention the dishes and the, like the floors. Oh my goodness, the floors are bad right now. But anyways, Jesus, give me like a few hours, all right? And then you can come over. How many of you are like that with me, right? Amen, thank you. Thank you, and not to mention the bathrooms, right? Three hours, that's all you need? You, you're more spiritual than I am. That, you know. Listen, I may be a little bit like, a little bit like Martha in this story because she wanted everything to be perfect for Jesus. Right? She was cleaning the house. She was baking the meal. And finally, finally, she gets so ticked off that she looks at Jesus and she says to him, Hey, would you tell Mary that she needs to get in here and help out too? You ever been there? You ever been doing some project, maybe with your spouse, right? I told you guys, I'm going to need cookies later, all right? Flowers. Flowers, I don't know. Maybe like chocolate-covered strawberries after this. But you think to yourself, man... I sure am doing all the work here. Sure would be nice if that other person would do something to help out around here. Right? Ever happened to you? No. Nobody else. Well, me either. Never happened to me, at least since I got up here to speak this morning. Right? 
Um, yeah, that happens. It happens in all of our worlds. And I want you to look at this. Look at what Luke describes, right? And he sets up what Jesus' answer is going to be. And Luke says this about Martha. He says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted. Wait, what? Luke, you, you must have written the wrong words here. What do you mean she was distracted, right? But that's really easy to do. Here it is. Martha is working very hard for her guest, right? She wants everything to be perfect. And surely, surely Mary's the one who's distracted, right? Because Martha's doing all of this stuff. She is serving, right? She is serving her guest. And by the way, that happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So she is serving Jesus. And instead, instead, when she has her, what we think is a very understandable outburst, right? Jesus looks at her and says this. He says, Martha, why are you anxious and troubled about all of these things? He says, only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion. And it's not going to be taken away from her. Um, wait a second. It's not really the answer. I think, number one, Martha thought she was going to hear. And number two, that I thought I was going to hear. Sure seems that Martha was doing what was good. Right? But Jesus says, there's only one thing that is necessary. Only one thing that is necessary. What in the world is that one thing? Well, it just so happens, Luke just told us. Jesus was just asked, what is the one most important thing? And Jesus said, well, it's actually two things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That is what's necessary. And Mary is doing that. She's loving me, and you're not. You say, wait a second, she's serving him. How in the world is she not? Well, let's just back up for a second. Do any of us happen to believe at any point that when she had her outburst and said, Lord Jesus, tell Mary to come help me, that she was loving Mary? Oh, heavens no. She wasn't loving Mary. And we've said already, look, that God demonstrates his love to us so we can in turn demonstrate it to other people. And that is loving God. And here it was, Martha was doing all of this other stuff to try to show God that she loved him. And then she missed loving her neighbor, which in turn missed loving God. And he says to her, you're missing the main thing. You're not loving me at all. Maybe I need Jesus to tell my wife that, right? I don't have to do any cooking and cleaning anymore. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to have it out that easy. So, look, here's what I think is important about this. Martha was too busy. Her busyness was causing her to miss out on loving God and loving her neighbor. Why? 
Why did the Levite and the priest miss out on the main course? Right? I love that. The message says not the good portion, but it says we're not going to take away the main course from her. Why did the Levite and the priest miss out on the main course, on the main thing? Well, I think the answer is they thought they were too busy. They had so much other stuff going on in their brain as they were headed. They were headed somewhere. Listen, being others-minded requires us not to be too busy. Being others-minded requires us not to be too busy. Now, I'm just going to cringe my toes here for just a second because I both hit and missed on this point this week. I had my, yay, I did it moment in my, oh man, I didn't even come close moment. Got a phone call from somebody that uh, is one of ours. Just wanted to talk. And I had five minutes because of my busy schedule. Had another moment where somebody said, hey, I need help lifting up a, a piece of a, a equipment, just need another set of hands, and was free and went and helped lift that. One moment was I was a great neighbor. The other one, I was an absolutely horrific neighbor. One person felt loved, and the other one, I'm not so sure that they felt very loved by saying to them, hey, I've only got five minutes for you. Listen, I don't have an answer for what this looks like in our lives. So I'm going to let us all kind of just chew on this one for the rest of this week. But, but I think very clearly there is a line of what too busy looks like. And I'd say that more often than not, and I myself probably sail right past what that line is. I like to feel fill every. There's my Oklahoma accent coming out, by the way. A little feel, right? Um, I like to fill every single one of my waking moments with something. I need to know. i got to plan out. i got to schedule all of these things that I'm going to do. And I don't leave any sort of opportunity with anything else. It's my own projects, my own agenda of stuff. That's what it is. And no sort of room for a God moment to show up in my life. Listen, when the unexpected happens, we become not callous, but conflicted. Conflicted about what it is that we should do if our schedules are too busy. Loving other people always means being present. But it doesn't always mean always Right? Loving other people always means being present for them, but it doesn't always mean always being present. There's a difference between those two things. One of them is, is that in the moment, you're there. But it doesn't mean that you have to be there every moment. Stephanie's grandmother, her name's Oma, right? That's German for grandma. And Oma never sat down. 
right? We would go over to Oma's house to go eat a meal, and Oma would be in the kitchen getting something. She'd bring out a plate, and then she'd go back in the kitchen to go get a glass, and she'd bring that out, and she'd go back in the kitchen. And so eventually, the entire family would just eat the meal without Oma being there because Oma was Martha, right? She loved to serve, and she would not sit down to eat a meal with us. She wasn't present. And I know many times as a family, we would just yell at her, Oma, just come sit with us. That's all we want. We don't want you to go get 8,000 napkins and to go, well, only half napkins, so it's really 4,000 napkins that she tore in half. We don't want you to get all of this other things for us, right? We just want you. That was the main course. We hadn't gone to her house for her cooking, right? We hadn't gone there because we had taken a pizza. We'd gone there to be with her. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Mary and to Martha in this story. And in such to us. He's saying, look, I want you to be present. I don't want you to be too busy for me to show up. You know, if all of we see of our neighbors is us waving at them as we pull in and out of our driveways, which, by the way, I'm guilty of that with some of my neighbors, that the only time I see them or say anything to them is as I'm pulling out in my vehicle. I'm probably too busy. I want to give you one more thought on this idea as we get ready to close, but being others-minded means that we don't expect them to meet us where we are at but rather we ought to meet them where they're at. The priest and the Levite both passed by on the other side of the road. Usually what we picture in our mind then is that they walked to the other side of the road out and around him, but the scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they went out and around and out of their way. It just says that they walked on the other side. From where he was at. And then it comes to the Samaritan. And when he sees him, what it says is it says he went to where the certain man was at. How often do we do the same thing as the priest and the Levite? We're so busy in our schedule of stuff, right? We're headed wherever it is that we're headed. We're doing whatever it is that we're going to do. Whatever our plans are, whatever our agenda is that we're trying to accomplish. And so we stay on our side of the road. And even though we might see what it is, we might know that God is calling us to lean in over there, that we are so self minded instead of being others minded that we don't deviate over and interrupt our plans or take any sort of detours along the way but that's really being others minded isn't it 
when we are willing to give up what it is that we're doing and going in order to go meet them where they are at. Listen, here's what I love about the Samaritan. He didn't expect for that man to get up on his own and come over to where he was at. He didn't expect for him to clean himself up all on his own. He didn't expect any of that. Instead, he went to him. And he cleaned him up because he was being others-minded. And that is loving our neighbors. Listen, as I finish up, I want to talk to two different people that are in the room right now. The first person is the person who's not a Jesus follower. If you're not a Jesus follower, you'd say, you know what? I would not identify myself as a Christian, as a person who says, I am following Jesus with everything that I'm doing. Then this moment, I want to talk to you for just a second. Because this story, this story of Jesus telling about the Good Samaritan is a story about you and me. Because you and I really are the man that's on the side of the road that is all beat up. And here's what I love about this. Jesus doesn't say to you and to me that we have to get cleaned up, bandaged up in order to come to him. Instead, what he says is, he says, I've left everything to come to you. Because I love you that much that is the good news we talk about the idea of what the gospel is it is the good news and it is this good news that jesus left everything he left everything in pursuit of you and of me and listen i love that he doesn't require anything else and to have a relationship with him, and that he's the one who does it all. He trades places with us so that we could have salvation. Listen, if you are not a Jesus follower today, and you maybe for the very first time that's sinking in to hear how much it is that Jesus loves us and that he made this incredible sacrifice. In fact, he gave up his very life so that we could live. And you're like, man, I've never heard about this ever. Maybe you have and you just said, I, I never thought about that or that I needed to respond to that any sort of way. You know, Jesus doesn't tell us in the story about how the man that was helped responded to the Samaritan later, but I think all of us in this room probably have a pretty good idea. There'd be a lot of love towards that man who rescued him. Maybe for the first time you're saying, I want that. I want that kind of relationship that you're talking about. And if that's you on your card today, would you just write the word Jesus for me? Just write the word Jesus. And this week we'll talk some more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And what do you do next now that you be want to begin a relationship with this guy who rescued you? That's the first group of people. So if you're in that first group, you can quit listening right now. 
Second group of people. That's anybody in this room that's a Jesus follower. My prayer, more than anything, is that we would be others-minded as Jesus followers. Listen, that has a few direct implications for us as a church. We're so bad. We're so bad about this idea. If we build it, they will come. Right? If we build a church, they will come to us. If we build a service, they will come to us. Right? You know who the they is? The they is church people. People who are already following Jesus, they're good at finding a church service. They know where to go look for one. Right? They know what a church building looks like. And they'll find both of those things, a church building or a church service. And you know what? That's good. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for those that are Jesus followers to find a group of people, right, to gather together with in order to worship Jesus and to grow to be more like him. But I don't want this right here to just be a Christian hangout place. It's not what God has called us to be. Right? And so being others-minded means a couple of things, but one of them means that it's a safe place in here. It's a safe place for you to invite somebody who doesn't look like anybody else in this room, who doesn't think like anybody else in this room, who doesn't act like anybody else in this room. I once heard a story about a, a preacher who was asked by a biker if he would be accepted in the room. Listen, I'll accept anybody. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they even believe in God. This is a safe place, and I want them to come to explore who Jesus is and to hear about him and to hear about his love and his life-changing message and to hear the stories about how he's changing other people's lives because he is, he is radically changing people that are in this room, their lives, for him in an incredible way. And I want them to come. And I want you to know that you can invite your friend in to do that, but I cannot do it alone. I can't, on my own accord, make this a safe place for people to investigate who Jesus is. But I want you to know that that is my heart's cry for this place to be that. And here's what I love, is that in 10 months of being together, I've never had to say this because something has happened where you've made this an unsafe place. And I only say it to you so that you hear where my heart is on this and because it's screaming out inside of the text what it means to be others-minded. And it means that it's okay. It's okay for anybody to walk in our doors and to be here. In fact, we want them to come and we encourage you to invite other people. In fact, challenge them. Tell them, come poke holes in what it is that we think about. Love to hear your opinions on it. I'm okay with it. I got thick skin. Listen, I was a college referee for years. I got yelled at by a lot of people. The worst, though, is six-year-olds. Tell them. My wife has to put a gag on me whenever I go out there to go watch my daughters play. Here's the second thing, though. Not only 
Do I want this to be a safe place? But here's the second thing. Just like the Samaritan met the man right where he was at, it'd be incredibly arrogant of me to say the only place that somebody can meet Jesus is to come right here. Incredibly arrogant. That doesn't mean that that doesn't happen here. It doesn't mean that you can't invite your friends and family and your neighbors and other people to come into this safe space to come and explore that thing. But my hope is, my goal is, my belief is, is that you can go to them too. My hope is, is that the things that we talk about are equipping you to be able to have conversations with your neighbor about a God who loves you in an incredible way and who loves them in an incredible way and you don't have to have all the answers to begin that conversation. In fact, really in the story, the Samaritan had already bound the wounds and he poured oil on them and he had put wine on them. He put him on his donkey and they took him to an inn. We're kind of like the inn at the end of the story. A whole bunch of work had already been done by the time that they got to the end. And so my hope, my prayer is, is that we would be a group of people who would be going to our neighbors. And that we'd be having conversations, an invitation to invite people into that sort of relationship with who God is. Meeting them right where they're at. With no expectations that they have to change anything. You say, but what about, no, listen, you don't have to change anything to come to meet my Jesus. You don't. There's not a single thing you have to change to meet him. That's what I want the heart of what we are being a part of God's building here to be. Is that we would be others minded. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for Luke's incredibly powerful message that you gave. God, a message that challenge my own heart. God, am I too busy? God, I wrote down a question in my own journal about if you were to show up, would I be too busy for you? Would you show up at my workplace or my house or even here where we worship? Would I be too busy for you? Pray, pray that I would not be too busy. And that I would find those opportunities to be others minded enough and to lean in and to love in an extravagant way. In the same way that you love me. I just want to give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Before we 
through our time of offering, I just want to say one more thing. We talk about some really big things and some of them are really, really hard to do. In fact, they're almost impossible to do on your own. One of the things that we say here is, is that our community groups are where we practice what we preach. They're the place where we put feet to what it is that we've been talking about. And we begin to hold each other accountable and pray about it and work out some of how we do this stuff together. If you're not engaged in a group, then you're kind of like, well, you're just coming to film study, right? Because that's the place where we practice. And at the moment that God says, I'm ready to send you into the game, we're not going to be ready. Because all you've done is a bunch of film study. You've not tried to put it into practice as to what to do, and you'll fumble around, and you're going to feel inadequate about stuff. So I just want to encourage you, if you're not engaged in one of those community groups, we have four of them going now. We have one on Sunday night, one on Wednesday night, one on Friday night, um, and, oh, and Thursday afternoon. Sorry, Butch, I almost forgot about yours. Great groups. And you need to be engaged in those because it's a place where we get to practice what it is that we're learning about. God, you are so great. Thank you for today. In your name we pray.